you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, uh, we'll be in chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 1. To the angel of the church, that is, that uh, the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and the toil and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you have put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endurance for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I will come. I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand at its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. <clears throat> which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this series, just being able to go through this book of Revelation. Uh, It's been so enlightening, so helpful to uh, for us to just grasp spiritual reality of what's going on in heaven and who Christ is and, and and his purpose and his authority and what he is doing now amongst his church lord it's so revealing so helpful to us to see these spiritual truths we live such physical lives that so often we were just completely unaware of the spiritual reality We thank you for these glimpses into this heavenly reality. I pray, Lord, that I pray for clarity. I pray for illumination. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand this passage. Lord, we we know we cannot unless you reveal it to us. Lord, help us to take this passage and apply it to our hearts. Let it soak into our minds. Think through this. Analyze it and pull it back together and apply it. And work it out into our lives. I pray that that would be so today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been moving through this book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. John gives us this vision of Christ. And it was a powerful vision. Very intimidating. Very scary. And John falls to his... uh, Falls on the ground at the feet of Christ. He's intimidated. He's scared to death. And it's a very... Um, not a happy reunion for these two old friends. It was a, a scary time, a scary thing. But Christ is giving this vision to John because there's a warning. There's some warnings that John has to pass along to the churches. And so Christ has these letters, if you will, these smaller letters within this book of Revelation. He has letters to seven churches. Chapter 2 and verse 1, you see... To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. 
So today we're going to be dealing with Ephesus. Next week, look at verse 8. And he says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. And so it goes. There's seven of them. Seven churches. And he says to write. And he has specific cities in mind. And we'll look at, look at that. But he has patterns there that, that we will see. And he addresses problems within the church. He's got warnings. Christ has warnings for these seven churches. They're pitfalls. Pitfalls, really, of all the churches. All of us can be guilty of these things. It's not churches... Uh, uh, sometimes people think, well, these are church ages and just uh, philosophies of life that, that the church has gone through. But no, these are literal churches with literal people, literal places that he is giving us. And we're going to use them as a checklist. These warnings, we're going to check ourselves. Use them as kind of like guardrails or fences to keep us on track. There's seven warnings, at least seven warnings in this, and we're gonna, we're gonna use them. We're gonna examine our own self. What would Christ say about Daniel's Bible church? We're going to, uh, we're gonna see these things. Now Christ, in a sense, is confronting these churches. He is confronting. Now sometimes we need to be confronted over our sins, right? And, and we need to know how to do that. One of the professors at the Master Seminary, Dick, Dr. Mayhew, he, uh, he said, this is just a good example for us, a good model for us of how to confront people, how to confront people about their sin. And he points out uh, that how loving and gracious Christ is, yet disi- but he has discipline and instruction, and he is firm, yet very gentle. This is a good model for us. And I want, I want to point these things out. I to go to the next screen up there. Here's some of the things that he did. First of all, he, uh, he, this is done with love. This is done with, with love, a goal of restoration. He's wanting to restore them. It's, there's almost a, a pleading tone, but it's a loving tone. It's a warning, but there's a loving tone to be restored. The goal here is restoration. And that's the goal for when we confront sin in other people's lives, to restore them. Number two. There's encouragement. In fact, encouragement precedes the correction that needs to be made. Encouragement first, and then, and then correction. He doesn't want to break their spirit. There's some things that, that they have right that they're doing well. And then he moves to, he just openly and concisely states the problem. No spin, no psychological spin, no cultural uh, uh, spins. This is straight from the words of Christ, really the word of God. Next, there's also a solution that's given. A solution to restore. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. And then there's, a, there's consequences. He lays out the consequences. If you continue to go down this road of disobedience, here's what's going to happen. And then, number six, there's an underlying tone here of expectation. There's an expectation that they, they want to respond positively, that they will respond positively. There's an expectation that these are Christians and, and they want to please Christ. They want to do what's right. They, they are misguided. They've fallen into sin. There's a stumbling block here that needs, there's something that needs to be corrected. 
And folks, that's a good model for us. When we are correcting each other, when we are correcting our children, this is a good model. It's a a perfect balance of love and and grace and yet firmness. And so this is valuable. This is a valuable... These are valuable things. This is the first letter. This is the first church that he is writing to just in these seven verses. And, And I want you to see a pattern here. And as we go through this pattern, I'm going to pull it out of these seven verses. And we'll move through quickly. And then we're going to spend some time, some extra time, just on the concern that Christ has of losing, leaving their first love. There's six elements that I want, to, I want you to see here. First of all, first of all the city. Oh, you'll, you'll see that. The city. There's seven different cities here. This one is the city of Ephesus. In verse 1, he says... To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now we looked at that word angel. We've seen this before. That an angel is just the messenger. And John, that's the way John is using it in this context here. The messenger is probably those pastors, those elders that will be reading this message, this letter. It says to the angels of the church. Each each of these churches has these messengers, these angels, these, these just pastors, these men that would be portraying this message or giving this message to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, we got a church in this city, particular city. There's, like I said, there's seven different cities. This particular city is on the seacoast. Now, it's not today. It's about six miles in because of the silt that has come down and just filled in over time. But it was a seacoast town at that time. And so you would have the, the ships come in and the merchants And you would have travelers come in and there would be trade. It was a very busy place and it was a good-sized city. They say uh, at this time it was probably 250,000 or or even half a million people. Now, it was a large city. It was a good-sized city for that that time. But it wasn't the capital. It wasn't the the capital of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. But it was a, it was one of the larger cities. The, the, actually, the capital was, was a lot smaller. But it was a free city. There was no Roman garrison there. They had a lot of autonomy, which is something that they enjoyed. The dominant feature of the city, though, was this large temple to uh, Diana. And it was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was an incredible thing. So you would have people just come to the city just to see this. And of course, there was temple worship. There was idolatry there. There was prostitution there. And it was big business. You can make a lot of money selling these little idols, these little gods to the tourists that come by. And boy, as Christians, they would not be tolerated uh, if they would speak out against idolatry, this, this form of idolatry. Now, this is a church that, that Paul founded in his second missionary journey about 40 years earlier than when John is writing here. And it was the time when Aquila and Priscilla were with Paul. And Aquila and Priscilla, now they had a business. They, they, uh, they had a business and they were helping Paul found this church. And this was the time when uh, that uh, Apollos came along. Now, Apollos was a, a great orator. But he was wrong, and so Aquila and Priscilla had to bring him alongside and say, hey, you're wrong here. It was during that time, you'll remember that. After about that time, Paul was there for a few years, and Timothy was left there to pastor this church for a while. In these latter years, during the time that John is writing, John used to be the pastor of the church. 
And it was during this time that there was a persecution. Domitian released a persecution really on the church at large. And John was affected by that. In fact, John was carted off and he was put on this island of Patmos from where he is writing this. Now, what's amazing is, is that in this city of idolatry, in this ungodly city, there was a thriving church. Now, it was probably small in comparison to the, to the city, but it was a thriving church. And that's amazing. You see the, the work of Christ. Christ said, I will build my church. And he did right there. Right there in the midst of this ungodliness. Now look at the second element here. You see the, the correspondent. The one who's writing is, is Christ himself. And John wants to point this out. Look in verse 1. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. It is Christ who said this. John wants to make sure that everybody knows. And he points back to this vision that he had of Christ. Remember that? And Christ, what did he have in his hands? He had the seven stars in his right hand. And he was right in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Remember that, the picture? It is as though John wants us to have that same picture in mind, or at least the church here, because... That was an intimidating picture in John's mind. He wants us to sense that same intimidation, that same reverence and respect and fear. This is Christ talking and He is addressing your church, Ephesus. That's intimidating. That's a little scary. If Christ said, okay, I'm going to evaluate Daniel's Bible church, we would say, oh man, okay, let's get our ducks in a row here. Let's... Let's see, it would, be, it would be intimidating. John wants us to sense this is Christ that is speaking here. This is not just John's making it up. This is, this is Christ's letter and all the authority that Christ has. And, and notice he is walking among his church. That is his focus. That is his preoccupation. He has given life to his church and he is building his church. And the thing is, is he knows He knows what's going on in his church. We need to remember that. Christ knows what is going on in Daniel's Bible church. Let's keep going. We see the the commandment. There's always a commandment that's given. This is a pattern that we see in all the seven letters here. There's a a commendation. He is commending them. He he, he is telling them what they've done right. Notice in verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. That's good. And you, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they're not. They're very discerning people. They're very uh, moral people. Uh, they're very discerning and they, they don't tolerate these, these men who come in and they want to preach in their church and they're just basically false prophets. They're He says, they're persevering, they endure for my name's sake, they do not grow weary. That's a good, solid church. That is is good. They're orthodox. They're stable. There's a steadiness. They know doctrine very well. And they can discern that. And these, these different philosophies that would have been going on in the church during that time, they could discern through that. And that's wonderful. And they hated immorality. Look at verse 6. Because he comes back and, and he gives them one extra thing that he 
admires about them that they are doing right. Verse 6, he says, yet this you do well, or you, you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, this is not the, the television show, the Nickelodeons or whatever. This is the Nicolaitans. This would have been a, probably a group of, uh, of, of philosophers that, that were espousing, really, it was just a, a hedonistic philosophy. Uh, probably that, that was this, this time. We don't know a whole lot about it, but uh, tradition, church tradition just tells us it was a hedonistic philosophy that, was, that would permeate, and of course you can imagine it permeating the, Ephesus where you'd have this temple worship, and they just would not tolerate that. They hated sin. They hated that kind of immorality. And he says, I also hate that. You, you guys are doing well. There's a lot of things that you're doing well. And I commend you for it. But, verse 4, there's a concern. There's a concern. There's a problem within the church. You say, well, it's just a small little problem. It's, it's really nothing. But it's big enough problem for Christ to address it. We'll see it. We'll come back to that one. And then he gives us, then he gives the, the command in verse 5. Here's what I want you to do about this. Therefore, remember the things. We'll come back to that as well. But notice that he uses strong language. If you don't correct this, I'm going to come and I'm going to visit you. He uses strong language here. Now let's skip down to the, the final counsel in verse 7. I want to come back to the other, but we'll just skip down for the sake of the outline there. Here's the counsel. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. I just I want to point out that churches. You'd think that he would say to this church, but he says to the churches. That's all the churches. This is a, a letter that's specifically to Ephesus. But you know what? We all have a problem with leaving our first love. So anybody that has an ear, any of the churches that have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Take heed. There's a warning here for, for all of us. And, and he says, now, whoever overcomes, and this is the overcoming that John talks about, overcoming the world that we see in First John. He says, whoever overcomes, he says, yours is the tree of life. I'll let you eat in it, eat from it. And you'll be in the paradise of God, heaven. And it's, it's commendation. It's good. It's good. You hear and you take heed and you heed this warning. Now let's go back to the concern. Christ's major concern is that they have left their first love. And it's a major enough concern for Christ to point it out. There's a couple of elements that I want us to see just for the rest of our time together. Just We're going to define what is it to be... Uh, to lose our first love. And then we want to find out how to, how do we correct that? Just two things. Define it and then correct it. So let's move to the, the first. Defining the sin. We have to define the sin. Christ has defined the sin. What is losing or leaving your first love? He says, but, verse 4, let's go back to that. We'll spend the rest of the time just in verses 4 and 5. But, this is Christ's evaluation. He says, I have this against you. This is an affront to me, the one who is in control of the church. This is my church. I'm the one who walks among the seven lampstands. This is my church, and I have this against you. We do not want Christ against us, do we? He says, I have this against you. Um, 
he gives them a clear problem within the church. And he defines it biblically, not psychological terminology. Well, this is your personality type, and, and I see this cultural element here. No, no, he just flat out says, this is, this is the Word of God, this is what I say. You have lost your first love, you have left your first love. Christ has to point this out to them. Christ has to point this out to them. Think about that. Sometimes we're not aware of our sin, are we? Sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we have our blind spots. We, we have to have someone else. Many times we don't see our sin, but other people see our sin, don't they? Don't you see the sin in other people before you see it in yourself? Many times. At least maybe it's just me. But you know what? Iron sharpens iron from Solomon. That's what Solomon says. He says, iron sharpens iron. When we're together, we're going to point out, we, we see sins. And Christ is pointing out these sins, these blind spots that we have. By way of application, the Bible does that for us. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, he said, all scriptures inspired by God is profitable for reproof. That's what's taking place here. Here's some reproof that you, you need to t- take heed of in this church, Ephesus. There's some iron, sharpening iron. There's some sharpness that we want to get you to that razor's edge. He says, you have left your first love. The word left there is to, to let it go, to forsake it, to set it down and then just, just walk away. You, you've left it. Now, this is not that they were not saved. It's not that they loved theology so much that they left their first nub. No. It's not necessarily lethargy or them being lethargic because they were very busy church, right? They were active. They were doing things. But they still, in the midst of that busyness, they had left their first love. First love doesn't necessarily in this case, mean each individual. But he's talking about the whole church, isn't he? It it simply observes that what the church had previously as a body is not found now. Now, the church was started about 40 years earlier, like I said, by by Paul. And and there was a a first love there. There was a love there that's not there now. And there's... You say, well, that's 40 years. That's a different, probably a different generation. Different generation that lacked the love and the the passion for Christ. They were maintaining. They knew their doctrine. They had been entrusted that doctrine. They got that doctrine right. But boy, as as, uh, applying it to their lives and what they were doing with it, and they had just lost their first love. We need to think through that. We need to make sure we don't lose our first love. One commentary said this is a degenerated mechanical orthodoxy. They have degenerated down to, it was just mechanics. Man, they knew that. They could crank out, they could teach theology very well. And it was orthodox. It was right. But, he goes on to say, the the affections of the first generation had cooled. The second generation had maintained the doctrine handed down to them, but they really didn't do anything with it. They weren't doing anything as far as what they used to do. 
they had sunken down into the place where they were just carrying out their Christian responsibilities with diminishing love for the Lord. Diminishing love for the Lord. They're doing what they, they were supposed to do. Now that kind of reminds us of Israel, doesn't it? Israel was right there in that same place. We saw that same downgrade with Israel. Now, we're to love the Lord. In our love for the Lord, there's some distinctions that we need to make, that we need to understand from a biblical standpoint. Let me just give you four quick ones. Number one, our love for the Lord is exclusive. God says, you love me first and foremost. He said, Christ said, if you love your mother more than me, you're not even worthy of me. It is exclusive love. You love me more than anything, more than anyone else. It's also a reactionary love. Now think about this. Our love for God is is really reactionary. We don't love Him first. No, He first loved us. We are just reacting to what He has done, the grace that He has given in in our own life. You know, there's something humiliating about that. There's something very humbling about that. We just live a life of gratitude. Lord, thank you for your grace, your constant, continuous mercy on my life. It's a reactionary love. It's also an essential love. Paul said, if you don't have love, you can remove mountains. You can, you can do all kinds of incredibly spiritual things. But if you don't have love, it's what? Nothing. It's an essential love. But there's one other thing. There's four. The fourth one is, it's a seen love. It's seen. It's something that you can see that is done. Look over. There's a just turn over a couple pages, really, to Second John, the letter of Second. Uh, the, yeah, the letter of Second John. Second John, verse six says this, and this is love. We want to define love, right? We want to know what love is. So we can do it, so we don't lose our first love. He says, this is love, that you walk according to His commandments. You say, well, no, no, no. Love is how loud you sing to God. Love is how expressive you are. No. Love for God is measured by what you do, by you keeping His commandments. That's the way it's measured throughout Scripture. It's not really an emotional thing, necessarily. Now, it should conjure up some emotions in us. Or it's just kind of dead. We'll talk about that. But it's a doing. They're, they're lacking things. They're not doing things that they used to do. Probably those little details that just showed that they really love the Lord. It's a doing thing. Christ, remember what Christ said. If you love me, you will what? You will keep, keep my commandments. It's a, it's a doing kind of, kind of love. Um, so it's seen. It's seen. It's not necessarily in our worship. It can be. It's not necessarily in our worship and our praise to God, but it's in our doing for God. There's a lack of love. And it probably came down to, it comes down to this, I think, just listening to the commentaries. This is talking about a love for God. A love for Christ. A love for God's Word. A love for God's people. A love for the lost. And, and they weren't really keeping his commandments. They knew their theology, but they really weren't keeping his commandments. And, and we already know the Bible says that 
that we must maintain a love for God above everyone else and everything else. You say, well, what's the difference? Let me try to illustrate this. When I was growing up, there was a church uh, where I grew up. There was this one man, and he was a deacon. He was an older man uh, when I was young. He was a deacon in the church, and he was very faithful to the church. He always did what needed to be done. I believe he, he was involved in taking up the offering. I remember some of that. But there was one seat in the back that the pew was kind of built into the back wall. And Mr. McCoy was his name. I believe that. Was that his name, Joe? Yeah, Mr. McCoy. And he would kind of get right there in that corner. You can prop yourself up a little bit. Okay? Prop yourself up. Every time. He would sleep through every sermon. He would sleep through every sermon. Now, he was faithful. He loved God. He was devoted. There was a certain level of love there. And he got up every morning. He came to church every morning. But he slept through every service. Now, I don't have, I don't think we have a problem with that here. I'm not trying to address sleeping. Although, I have seen some interesting things on Monday morning when you go through. I, I've seen some earplugs that we've picked up, and I've seen some a lot of fingernail clippings that we see. So I think, oh, what's going on here? But no, Mr. McCoy, he would even snore, and it got really bad. They had to address it. He was committed. He was devoted. He was there. But there was, there was a difference, right? You see the difference. There's a difference there. I mean, his heart, he was there physically, but his heart, he didn't come with a zest of knowledge to know what does God have for us today. There's a love for God's words. There's a difference there. You can see the difference, right? There's a commitment. There is faithfulness. There was even sacrifice on his part. But Jesus said, you are to love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart. With all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, every ounce of you is to love the Lord. There's something missing. One commentary said this, the first love, first love would suggest that they still loved, but with a quality and intensity unlike they used to love. They don't love like they used to. There's a faithfulness there. There's, oh yeah, they're still together. There's, they're a church. Man, the heart is just, the heart is gone. There's a, a joy in serving that is missing. They're there, but the enthusiasm is just not there. Now you can go over the top with enthusiasm. I'm not saying that. You can go over in the top and just be real fakey about enthusiasm. There's a, a desire to learn. There's an eagerness to help. There's a, an alignment with what is right, right priorities and emphasizing the right things when we have a first love. And sometimes it's hard to see until you look at examples like Mr. McCoy. And then you begin to see, you know, we can do things out of duty, out of slavish, slavish duty to God as opposed to a heart of love, right? A heart of love. I can serve my family as a, as a husband. I can get up. I can do all of my husbandly duties without really loving my wife. 
I can do all of my fatherly duties without really loving. Well, you say, well, well, just me going to work and bringing home a paycheck, well, that's good enough. Well, we know better, right? We know better. You say, well, I, I feed my kids. That's all the love that they, they should have. No. No. You say, well, I love God. and Just me showing up, that's all that needs to take place. No. Not when we are commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And there's a difference. It's a subtle difference, but there, there's a difference. There's a difference. Loving devotion to Christ can be lost in the midst of active service. <laughs> in the middle of, of doing our duty, we can, we can lose our first love and we can... We can not even have love. And he goes on to say, this is a quote, And certainly no amount of orthodoxy can make up for a failure to love one another. Just, I'm right. Boy, I know I'm right. And I have have right teaching on my side. But you know what? That doesn't mean you love people. It doesn't mean that at all. So we have to evaluate ourselves. We have to evaluate ourselves in light of Scripture. We tend to evaluate ourselves in light of others, (laughs) in light of each other. Now think about this. Let's use Mr. McCoy for an example. Well, my love for God is going to be compared to Mr. McCoy. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to even be a deacon. I've got the title. I'm I'm going to even take up the offering. I'm going to do my duty. Now listen, if that's all there is, That comparison is wrong. That comparison is poor. Our love for God has to be be revealed to us from Scripture. That is our standard. This is our standard. The love of God is seen in Scripture. And I, I I think of David. You know, he had these mighty men with him. And, and he, he just asked for a glass of water. Man, it would be great to have some water, you know? It was, man, you have to cross enemy lines. You have to get down. You have to get it from the well. And then get back across. We love David. Guys, come on, let's go. If our master, he wants it, we're going to do it. So they break the lines. They get in there. They get the water. They escape with their lives. What does David do? He says, no, I'm not even worthy of this. I'm not even worthy. And he pours it out. That just blows my mind. He says, no. No, I'm not worthy of this. That shows a love, a dedication. That shows an intensity on David's part. It says, no, God, only God deserves. And this is what he told his man. Only God deserves that kind of loyalty. Only God deserves that. That's a good example for us. Let me ask you. Can you remember, can you think back now, can you think of things that you used to do for God that you don't do now? Is there things that you used? Is there an intensity? I, I just being honest. I mean, my prayer life, my prayer life isn't really what it should be, as especially as a pastor. And and, and folks, that's the way you, you gauge your first love, prayer life. Do you go to Scripture eager to learn, wanting God? What is it that you have for me? Do you do you? Come to church with an eagerness, a love for one another. 
Well, I think we've defined it. We understand. It's hard to put in words, but I think we kind of understand it now. How do you correct the problem? Number two, how do you correct it? What do we do next? Look at verse 5. He doesn't leave us without a solution here in verse 5. He says, therefore, he says, now, you've lost your first love. Or, no, I'm sorry, you've left it. I keep saying lost, but that's a distinction that we need to make. They've left it. It was there, and they just turned their back on it, and they left it. They left their first love. Therefore, now here's what you do. This is advice from Christ himself about first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. First thing is remember. Think back. Why would you do that first? Why would you look back in the, in the past because I, I think it helps us to see how far we've fallen. Because it's hard to detect losing your first love, right? It's hard to detect. I mean, maybe it wasn't so hard for Mr. McCoy. We can see that a little bit. But maybe it's hard for us to detect. But if we look back and we say, yeah, I, I used to do this. I used to be faithful to Sunday school. I used to be faithful in reading my Bible. I used to be faithful in prayer. I had prayer lists and I had concerns for people and I would write these things down. I'm not as fervent. And we, and we begin to see, yeah, this is what I used to do and here's what I do now. Just a little bit, but it's, it's stuff that I need to get back and do again. It causes us, when we look back, it causes us to, to realize how far we have fallen. And then we begin to see the downward slide. And let me tell you, folks, when I see that, when I see my vulnerability to just slide and just go right into sin, I pray like the, the psalmist that we sang, um, Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing, the last, he says, Like a feather, or, or bind my heart to you. He says, Take a feather, bind my wandering heart to you, so that I do not, so I don't. He says, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Lone, uh, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Listen, we begin to realize. We see that downward slide. We begin to realize we're not where we should be. And we say, Lord, Lord, we're dependent upon you. Hold us. Lord, we slide. Hold us back. Keep us with your grace. Keep us from sliding into those Sins, And we begin to see how deeply we can fall into sin. And we begin to cry out for our help. But also looking back helps us to define our sin. Helps us to understand what it is to lose our first love. When we look back, we begin to see our sin face to face. We begin to see that it's an affront to God. Here's what I was and here's what I am now. And it's an affront to God. And it's also a danger to ourselves. So we look back. And we begin to see the danger. We really cry out to the Lord. But the next step, he said, look in verse 5. In the middle of verse 5, he says, And repent. And repent. That's a necessary thing. Repent from our, our error. For a Christian to... To stay in his sin is, is misery. It is. Have you ever just realized, Lord, why am I struggling here? Why am I so frustrated here? Why is my life so miserable? And you begin to look, yeah, you know what? There's unconfessed sin here. 
So we are those, John says, if you confess your sins, or since you confess, since we are those kinds of people that confess our sins, then there's a joy to our salvation. And that joy can be lost when we do not confess. It can be taken away. And so we repent. And then he says, and do the deeds you did at first. Go back. Go back to the praying like you used to. Go back to reading your Bible like you used to. Go back to your church attendance like you used to. Go back to loving people like you used to. Go back to loving the lost like you used to. It says go back. It's an action. And Christ takes these things very, very seriously. Look, look what He says. Or else. You ever heard an or else from your mom? Or an or else from your dad? You know, and we're, you know, it's, it's always funny as kids. We always thought, well, dad's driving. He can't do anything. But he, he would just say, you don't want me to come back there. Well, no, you're going to wreck. And I mean, we don't want to, you know, but there was an intimidation. He says, or else he says, I am coming to you. Now, this is not the friendly visit that we want to have from Christ. He says, I'm coming to you. And he says, I will remove your lampstand. This is serious stuff. What is that talking about? Remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Well, essentially, just to cut to the chase for the sake of time, it's talking about our influence in the world. Christ said, remember, he said, you're, you're lights in the world. He said, I'm going to take that light out. No lamp, no light. Now, you can function all you want, but I'm not there. There's no light. There's no light. I'll remove it, he says. I will take it. I'll take it away. You will have no influence on this on this earth. We will have no real purpose. A church without light. Well, what's that? It's nothing. It's nothing. It's a fellowship. It's a it's a club. Do you know churches like that? Probably. Functioning. Oh, they're busy. No light. The loss of, just another comment from a commentary, the loss of a, a vital, loving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ opens the door for spiritual apathy, for indifference to others, for love for the world. When we begin to, to kind of just, just go down just a little bit, I don't love God like I, I once did. It, it opens ourselves up. Opens ourselves up even for love for the world, compromising, judgment, and ultimately removing our lampstand. But even beyond that, death. There were some who in the Corinthian church, God just snuffed out their life. He says, you're not going to be here. They did not repent. And he says, you're not going to be mine and, and do that and, and mess up my church. Repentance is a must. Repentance is a must. David, David repented, or I'm sorry, Daniel. No, David repented, didn't he? When he was caught, when he was finally confronted with his sin, his sin with Bathsheba, what did he do? He says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. I realize my offense to, to God. He's... He's confessing that. And he says, Lord, now restore the joy of my salvation. We see that in one of the Psalms. That's repentance, isn't it? 
isn't it? I don't want to go that way. I, I, I burnt my hand on that stove before. I turn. Peter, when he sinned, he says he went out and he wept bitterly. There's a brokenness because we realize how frail we are and how dependent upon God we are. Repent. That's too simple. A putting off and renewing our mind and putting on. Well, that's, that's too, it can't be that easy. But let me tell you, folks, it is. It is. I keep looking. Lord, give us more here. Give us more. He says, just repent. You know what? I'm reminded of what John said in 1 John. He says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. All we do is confess it. Yeah, Lord, I've lost my first love. I don't have the enthusiasm like I did. I repent of that. And I turn from that. You say, well, how do you lose your first love? I'm just thinking about that. Sometimes I think our God is too small. We don't have the image of God that we, that we need uh, that, that in, invokes fear in us to love Him. Or maybe we just lack appreciation for God. And we don't really focus on what He has done for us, and so we don't live a life of gratitude. Sometimes maybe it's just our pride that gets in the way. Sometimes I also believe that we can get involved in just busy activities and orthodox theology. We begin to lift our theology up here apart from Scripture and we begin to just debate theology and boy, that's fun. That energizes us. And what we see is we're told to preach the Word. The Word and theology have to maintain, have to go together. So we can lose our first love, folks. There's probably a million ways it's demonstrated. But as Christians, we must maintain a love for God higher than anyone else, higher than anything else in our life. And just a quick question in my own life. Is there enough evidence? People say, he loves the Lord. She loves the Lord. You have to ask yourself that question. We have to ask the self of Daniel's Bible church. People looking at us. Do they see a love for God here? They say, Daniel's Bible Church, man, that is a top-notch church. They preach the Bible there. They know their theology there. They're fervent. Do they, would they say, man, they have a love for God there. And it's seen. It's evident. It's visible. Dead orthodoxy and outward service cannot make up for a cold heart. And we have, to, we have to take the advice of Solomon who said, he says, he says, watch over your heart with all diligence and for from it flows the issues of life, the springs of life. It comes down to a heart issue. And we have to be careful. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this reminder. Lord, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to have our sins confronted by Christ Himself and to think through these things, think about these things, evaluate our own lives. An unexamined life is not worth living. An unexamined life is a dangerous life to live. Help us to examine our life in light of Scripture, not in light of everybody else's standards, especially the world's standards. 
No, we have to go to Scripture. We have to ask the question, have we left our first love? We just set it aside. Have we um, abandoned it? Walked away? Said, I'm too tired. I'll do it later. Lord, help us to not be those Christians. Help us to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Thank you for your good attention this morning. Listen, if we can help you, obviously, the first step is Christ. What do you do with Christ? You have to, you have to acknowledge that He is the one who demands our life. He is the one that deserves our life. We have to reckon with Him and We do that through salvation. We have to repent of our sins and turn from our sins and turn to Christ in faith. If you haven't done that, it's the first place to start. And then as Christians, we have to evaluate ourselves. We have to evaluate our lives, constantly looking in light of Scripture. Do I love the Lord with all my heart? Sobering stuff. If we can help you, we'd love to be able to do that. We have elders that uh, would be able to, to help you. Um, you can see me uh, in the back there. Or even throughout the week, we'd love to be able to help you. Father, again, we're dependent people. We would, we're prone to wander. Lord, now take our hearts and seal it. Hang on to it for us, Lord. Because we know we could slip. We know we slide. Thank you for exposing us to our sins. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.